So it's a real pleasure this morning. We get to hear from our brother, Jay Thomas, from uh, Seven Mile Road, Philly, which is awesome. He's brought his wife, Shiny, along, and Hannah and, and Micah together as well. So we're really excited to have them all with us. Uh, Jay and, and Shiny have been with Seven Mile Road like from the earliest days and have been really helpful in forming this. I got to say, to be honest, I kind of just met him this morning. And as someone who hasn't met him, he's someone who I've just met who's had such a profound impact on this church and my own life um, because of the work that he's done here. When you think about all the healthy DNA, the centrality of the gospel, and much of the efforts that we come and to enjoy here about holiness and humility, Ajay is a big part of instilling that into the deep, deep DNA of this church. So as we have come, many of us much more recently, we have all benefited from the work and the labor of our brother here. So as he comes to hear from us today, I can't commend him any more to you to listen to his word and his doctrine, and I can even extend to you his conduct of life. This is a guy you need to know and meet, and we can heartily receive his teaching from God's word. So Ajay, lead us. Uh, Tim and I go way back, about five minutes, so uh, <laughs> it is a joy to be with you. Uh, as Tim mentioned, um, so much on the other way, it's the other way, your DNA and your fingerprints have been all over my life, my family's life, and our ministry there. So uh, Lord willing, this fall it'll be 10 years since Abmal Road Philly began, uh, and 11 years since this church sent us down there. Uh, we have a number of elders and deacons. The church has grown so that it's gone from about 98% second-generation Indian American like myself to about 50-50, and so now it's far more diverse in that way. Uh, we've brought on our first church planting resident this year and are hoping to send him out in the next year or two to plant. And so when you remember us and think of us, you can be prayerful that we would keep following in some of the footsteps that you've blazed for us, and we too would become a church planting church like you are. When you pray, especially for us, if you could pray that more people would come to see Jesus. We've grown, but grown with folks who know the Lord a lot in this recent years, and so we want to desperately grow also with who, those who are meeting Jesus for the first time. So you can pray that for us as well. But again, a great joy to be with you. Okay, let me pray for us, and then we'll consider Psalm 88 together. Father, we bow our heads and ask now for the help of your Holy Spirit to come and aid us so that both the preaching and the hearing of your word might be helped. Apart from you, we confess that our eyes won't see and our ears won't hear, our minds won't understand, and our hearts are hard and they will not receive. So we pray for the help that comes from your Holy Spirit, that what I say would be faithful and true to what your word has said, and what we hear, our minds would understand and be given light, and our eyes would be given sight, and our ears would be given hearing so that we might receive your word, that it might land and bear fruit today and in years to come a hundredfold. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're considering Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is not a particularly cheery psalm, but it's been a very helpful psalm in this season of my life and in the season of our church's life as well. Before we jump into the psalm, would you listen to just these two quotes from well-known men of history? The first is a man named Charles Spurgeon. If you've ever heard that name, Charles Spurgeon was a preacher for about four decades in one church. He was a megachurch pastor before there was such things as megachurches. Thousands flocked week in and week out to hear Spurgeon preach. To this day, he is quoted, cited, referred to all the time. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Spurgeon says, I could weep by the hour like a child 
and yet not know what I wept for. The mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in ten thousand ways and die over and over again each hour. Listen to another quote, this one from our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, who needs no introduction. He said this, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on the earth. Whether I shall be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode that I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. Now just two, but what these two great men of history suffered with is what we would today probably call depression. And I know that's a loaded word, but just the idea of being familiar with and living in the mist of darkness. In, in our city, in Philly, there was a study done recently about top internet searches in our city when it comes to the Bible. Meaning in Philadelphia, if you logged onto your computer and you went onto a search engine, what were people searching about when it came to the Bible? And right at the top of the list, in the top five, people in my city were entering into their search engines, what does the Bible say about depression? It gives you a sense of what my city is like. And I suspect if Boston is anything like Philadelphia, I'd imagine that you have colleagues and coworkers and classmates and neighbors and family and friends and us here as well who are acquainted with and know well the bouts of melancholy and despair and darkness. And into those times, we want to know, does God have anything to say? And if He does have something to say, what does God or what do the Scriptures have to say for those whom darkness has become their closest companion? And that's why, to answer that question, is why I want us to be in Psalm 88. So if you've got a Bible, you can leave it open there, Psalm 88, and we'll walk through some of these. But I want you to set this as sort of an introduction to this psalm. Psalm 88 has been called the darkest of all the psalms. In fact, one person wrote of it, it's the saddest prayer in the Bible. And perhaps as, as Pastor Tim was reading, you could feel the darkness. You can feel the despair. And what makes Psalm 88 particularly dark and especially sad is that this one psalm never turns. Do you hear that? It never pivots. It never climbs. You see, all the other psalms of lament, and the psalms are full of them. In fact, they say that one-third of the book of psalms are laments, weeping, wailing, complaints. But just about every other one, with the exception of Psalm 39 and Psalm 88, at some point ascends, at some point climbs, at some point walks up some stairs, and there's a glimmer of light, but not Psalm 88. For example, the song we sung at the very beginning, that's from Psalm 13, a well-known lament. Would you listen to how Psalm 13:1 begins? We sang it together. How long, O Lord? Will you hide your face from me forever? How long, O Lord? Right? You can hear the psalm starts in the basement, in the dark, in the pit. There's no light in the psalm. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? But then, would you listen to how Psalm 13 ends? Psalm 13, verse 5 and 6 says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love, and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully for me. You feel the turn. 
You see the pivot. You watch it climb. It begins in the dark, but there is in all the Psalms of Lament just a a slight crack in the door and a, a slight parting of the clouds and a beam of sunlight that comes through. Just the ever smallest glimmer of hope. In all the other Psalms of Lament, either God rescues or God shows up or God delivers or God answers or somehow the psalmist's own confidence is renewed. He has this bolt of faith and he turns upward to the Lord. They all end in a positive note. But not Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is a tunnel with no light at the end of it. It's dark clouds with no silver lining. It's a song played only in minor chords. It's a painting only in black strokes. It's, it's a cellar with no steps or a pit with no rope. There is no light coming. The psalm begins in darkness and ends in darkness. In fact, did you hear? Literally, the last word of Psalm 88 is darkness. My only companion is darkness. So that makes you go, what kind of song is this? Right? We sang Psalm 13 before. But can you imagine, as you know, this is the songbook of God's people. So when they gather for corporate worship, just like we did with the first song, someone from the front could open up this as their hymnal and say, people of God, turn with us to Psalm 88. Can you imagine singing a song where the last line ends with, and my only friend is darkness? When by the time you get to the Amen, all you've agreed on together as God's people is, the only companion I've got is pitch black. Darkness is the only friend I have. What a friend we have in darkness would be how the song goes. You see, this, this is what makes this psalm very different. And so you ask yourself, what's this song? What's this prayer? What's this psalm doing in Scripture? And moreover, maybe the question is, what hope can be gleaned from a song that has no hope? From a psalm that starts here and ends descending here? What light can come from a psalm that has no light? And yet, here's what I want you to hear. Surprisingly, a lot. In fact, when we allow the message of Psalm 88 to sink in, it can become for us, as one commentator said, a nightlight for the darkness. That's what this psalm can become. A nightlight for those who are in darkness. In fact, I want to suggest to you, what should you sing when you're miserable? Psalm 88. What should you pray when you're depressed? Psalm 88. What words should come from your mouth when you don't know what words should come from your mouth? And that's Psalm 88. So I want to show you just two things from this psalm, though there is much I'm sure we could glean from it. Two things. One thing that you should know and one thing you should do when you find yourself in the darkness. When you, a loved one, when someone around you is walking in the midst of darkness, one thing you should know, one thing you should do. Here's the first one. The first thing you should know when you are in the darkness is you should know that even godly, mature believers get depressed. You should know that even godly, vibrant, believing, mature Christians get depressed. They find themselves in bouts of darkness, struggling with melancholy. Quite plainly, what we're simply saying, and you know this already, 
is that even if you're a godly, mature believer, it does not make you immune from darkness. It does not mean that you will not have melancholy or find yourself in the pit. That is untrue and worse, unhelpful. In fact, if you look at Psalm 88, the very beginning of the psalm, before verse 1, there's actually this little heading. And I want you to know that's not put in by the English Bible. That's in the original language. When the psalm was first written, that superscript, that heading was there because we're supposed to learn something from it. And so here's what it says. This is a psalm. A song of the, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And then it says who the author is. This is written by a man named Heman. Now, if you do some digging in the first half of your Bible, you'll learn that Heman, the man that wrote this psalm, was not some JV believer. In fact, let me tell you about Heman. Heman was the grandson of the prophet Samuel. So if you've ever heard of Samuel, this is the prophet that literally poured oil on king, the greatest king of Israel's history. He poured oil on David's head. He anointed that man. This was his grandson. Samuel's grandson is this man, Heman. Moreover, when King David appointed a worship leader for his people, someone to stand on stage and lead God's people in covenant singing to God, Heman was at the head of that. He was a worship leader for God. He wrote God's people their songs. In fact, in the Psalms, you will find other Psalms penned by Heman and his brothers. In fact, in the Old Testament, we read of all the instruments that he played. God blessed this man with wisdom so that when it describes Solomon, to compare it said he was even wiser than Heman. That's how wise Heman was. I mean, you had to compare him to Solomon to show you how much wise this man was. Moreover, he's given 17 children, 14 boys, 3 girls, all of whom become musicians like dad, all of whom are in God's choir and leading God's people in worship. He's filled with the Spirit and prophesies. And if all of that isn't impressive enough, he's written Scripture. No matter how advanced we become in our devotional life, we're never going to have author of the Bible in our resume, right? And Heman does. Heman does. This is not some average man. This is a true, genuine, believing, mature, godly man. And in fact, you can see his godliness and his maturity and his faith in the psalm itself. In fact, just look with me at verse 2, verse 9, verse 13. Hear it. In verse 2 it says, Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Verse 9, Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, But I, O Lord, cry to you, in the morning my prayer comes to you. What does that mean? In the darkness, he prays every day, every morning. I'm calling out to you. What does that mean? It means that you can be a believer, godly and mature, that you can pray and pray and pray and pray and still have everything in your life fall apart. That you can be a faithful, devoted follower of God and still find yourself in the dark. It means you can have your devotional time every day as this man did. Gather with God's people every week as this man did. And you can get to the amen of your prayer and nothing changes. Nothing changes. That suddenly 
the light doesn't come, the darkness doesn't lift, the clouds don't part, the hope doesn't come, God doesn't answer. This man never missed his devotional time, his quiet time, never missed church. He was a genuine believer and his life was falling apart. In fact, would you listen just to Heman's cry? In verse 3, he says, My soul is full of troubles and his life is near death. In verse 4 and 5, he feels like God's left him for dead and forgotten about him. And he says, I have no more strength. I can't keep doing this. I've got nothing left. He's got the towel in his hand ready to throw this thing in. In verse 8, he laments that he's alone. Everyone has shunned him. He's cut off from his relationships. He's shut in and cannot escape. In verse 9, his eye grows dim through sorrow. He's cried so much he cannot see straight anymore until it descends all the way to the bottom in verse 18 so that he can say, darkness is the only friend I have left. Implication, by the way, Darkness and not God is the only friend I have left. Darkness is the only companion I've got. And what makes this lament even worse and more unbearable is that it's not just that the things around him have grown dark. It's that things within him have turned dark. That's what makes it so hard. It's that God seems to have turned off the light in his heart. That his soul feels like it's in pitch black. And that God is nowhere to be found. He can't see God. And he doesn't hear from God anymore. He doesn't feel God's presence. And God doesn't feel near. And that's what makes it unbearable. You see, it's one thing to go through really dark things. But if you know God is near, I mean, then you can say like David does in Psalm 23, even if I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Right? If you know God's with you, if the light of His countenance is blazing your valley, even if you go through the valley of the shadow of death, you fear no evil for you are with me. But here, here he doesn't have a sense that God is with him. He doesn't feel God's nearness. He doesn't hear God's voice. In fact, he says, verse 14, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away and why do you hide your face from me? God's not anywhere near. In fact, it's saying to us again and again, you can be a genuine, true believer, mature and believing, and find yourself in grips of sadness and find yourself in the dark. In fact, this is what Christian fathers long before us said. In the 1600s, men penned this thing called the Westminster Confession. And they said this, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken, diminished, or temporarily lost in various ways by God's withdrawing the light of His countenance and allowing even those who reverence Him to walk in darkness and have no light. Right? That's what church fathers 1600 said, that there will be seasons in the genuine believer's life when it feels like your assurance is shaken, Your salvation feels like it's tenuous and lost where it feels like God has hidden His face and darkness is the only friend you've got. Now you would ask, and rightly so, Ajay, how could any of that possibly be helpful? Right? How could that be helpful? And yet here it is. Here's why that's helpful. Because one thing this does is it sets our expectations right about what life in this world will look like. One pastor said it this way. He said, it's almost like if you were about to enter into a room and I told you before you went in, this is a honeymoon suite. 
or a presidential palace, you might walk into that room and go, this place is a dump, right? Now, if you were about to walk into that same room and before you entered, I told you this is a prison cell, you might go into the same room and go, this is not so bad. Now, why? You're going into the same exact room, you're encountering the same exact thing, but your expectation is different and therefore how you experience it is different. And, and what the man went on to say is, listen, we ought not be naive that just because we follow Jesus doesn't mean that we are immune from all the things that make life on this planet so hard. If you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that really, really bad things won't happen. Because when they do, that's when we need to hear that Peter the Apostle once told us, do not be surprised when you come through fiery trials. Right? Don't be shocked by that. In fact, it's almost like, you know, there's that verse in the New Testament that says, God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. But what does that imply? All things. That implies that we are susceptible to all things. We're not immune from the all things. Yes, God can work all the things out together for good, but that means that we might face all kinds of things. And when they come, we should know that sometimes even godly, mature, believing Christians get depressed. That's what we should know. But second, here's then what you should do. When you, when your loved one finds yourself in the darkness, know that even mature believers can be in the dark and be in the pit of despair. But second, here's what you should do. And what you should do is when life is really, really hard, you should tell God that life is really, really hard. When life is kicking you in the teeth, Psalm 88 is saying you have permission from God to tell Him that life is kicking you in the teeth. That's what this psalm says. In fact, Samarod, I would ask you, how would you describe this prayer? How would you describe Psalm 88? If I had a whiteboard here and we were to just jot down the different descriptors of this psalm, I wonder what words would go up on that whiteboard. For example, just look at the psalm again with me for one second. In verse 6, he starts talking to God. Right? He's described his situation, and now in verse 6, he's going to talk to God. And you can almost feel this fist to the heavens, maybe even a finger pointed to the sky, because in verse 6, he's going to start saying, you. And listen to what he says. Verse 6, you have put me in the depths, in the regions dark and deep, in the pit. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. And then in verse 10, he starts to change and he's got some questions he wants to ask God. So now in 10, he starts asking. He says, God, I've got some things to ask you. Let me ask you, verse 10, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Verse 11, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Verse 12, are your wonders known in darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? You hear what he's saying? He's saying, Yahweh, tell me, do you have a choir in the grave that I don't know about? Do you have a concert in the land of the dead that I'm not aware of? Are there skeletons in coffins that are singing of your righteousness and declaring of your faithfulness? You know what he's saying? I am a living worshiper, ready to worship you. You're the one that's going to lose out if you let me go into the grave. 
I'm more than ready to sing to you, but you won't save me. So is there some choir in the grave that I don't know about? Are you receiving glory from those in coffins? Why would you let my life go down to the pit? What praise are you getting from the land of the dead? Why are you doing this to me? That's his question. Those are his pleas. And then at the end of all of that, nothing. No answer. No parting of the clouds. No sunlight. No glimmer of hope. Heaven doesn't say anything. So then in verse 15, he descends to say, Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. You know what he's saying? You know what, God? This is nothing new with you. This is the way you've always been to me. From my childhood on, you've never been there. See, he's starting to almost read his present situation in darkness in light of. He's, he's starting to read his whole life in light of his present darkness. And he's not seeing it all straight. So I want to ask you again, Sevmarod, what words would have went on the whiteboard of what this prayer is like? I'd imagine we'd find the word honest on there. I'd imagine one of us would have said raw. I'd imagine we might even say words like uncensored and unfiltered. If we worked up the courage, we might even say it feels a little irreverent. We might say it sounds imperfect. But perhaps bigger than all the other words, we would write the word real. Whatever this prayer is, it's real. It's the real Haman meeting with the real God. You see, there's nothing wrong with his theology. He's written so many different psalms. You can read his perfect theology. But what he knows in his head isn't what he's experiencing in his heart. And so he's not hiding behind a a certain doctrine. He's letting the real him encounter the real God. And here's what I want you to ask or have you consider about that. What does it say about your God that he lets a prayer like this into the Scriptures? Because I can tell you this, if we let someone pray in our service and they prayed like this, everybody would get very nervous, right? And you would shift in your seat and you go, when is this guy going to stop? And you would look to the pastors going, somebody's got to pull this guy aside. He can say that in his bedroom, but you can't say that out loud in, in church, We would give him a theology book. We would tell him God doesn't forget people. We would tell him about God's love. We would grow very unsettled. What does it say about your God that he doesn't grow unsettled by a prayer you would be unsettled by? That he's not offended by a prayer you would be offended by? In fact, what does it say about your God that he didn't reject this prayer or the man praying it, but recorded this prayer in the Scriptures? In fact, if you step one more back, What does it say about your God that His Holy Spirit inspired this prayer? All Scripture is God-breathed. What does it say about the kind of God you and I have that His Spirit inspired this man to write these words so that you might have language to speak when you're depressed, to sing when you're miserable? See, Seven Mile Road, what I want you to hear is when life is really, really hard, You have permission from the Scriptures to tell God that life is really, really hard. You know what godly, mature believers do when they're in darkness? 
they weep. They wail. They mourn. They lament. It's like one writer named Michael Card. He said it this way, it seems to me that we do not need to be taught how to lament. What we need is simply the assurance that we can lament. It's almost like no one needs to teach you how to lament. Someone just needs to tell you you have permission to lament. We are not supermen. When the bullets come, we bleed. And we're weak. And, and what this scripture is saying to us is when you find yourself in pain, God is not telling you to get rid of the pain. And you're not to get rid of God. You are to go to God with your pain. God is not saying get over it. God is saying come to me with it. And he can more than handle it. One commentator said it this way. He says it perfect, so I don't want to ruin it. Let me read you what he said. Notice this thing. Cloudy as this psalm seems, we should not miss the most obvious point. Yes, the psalmist says his soul is full of troubles. Yes, that his life draws near to the grave, that he feels like a dead man, like one forgotten, that it seems like God has isolated him in regions dark and deep, that he's drowning, that he can't escape, that his life is a horror, that he's cast down, that he's unheard, that he's afflicted, that he's shunned, but he's telling all of this to God. I love that. Yes, his whole life is falling apart, but it's falling apart Godward, because that's what believers do. They pass out, but they pass out onto God. They fall into God's direction. He is kicking and wailing and screaming, but he's doing so towards God. Out of all this darkness and no light coming, he's still going to God with his pleas and to God with his complaints so that no matter what God does or doesn't do, he's not going to get rid of Heman. Heman's never going anywhere. It's almost like when Jesus had this hard saying and everybody started leaving him and he turns to his disciples and he says, do you want to leave me also? And what does Peter say? Peter, one of the disciples, he goes, you have the words of eternal life. Where else should we go? You know how I've always, I've always heard that almost like, look, if there was some other option, I would consider it because following you is incredibly hard. But where else are we supposed to go? Your God. And Heman's going, I'm going to complain and I'm going to mourn and I'm going to accuse and I've got a finger to the heaven, but I'm telling you, it's still towards you. I'm falling apart, but I'm falling apart towards you. And nothing in this life is going to get rid of me and you. I'm going to fall apart God word. He's like a little kid that's throwing a temper tantrum, kicking and screaming, but all the while held in God's hands, in God's lap, even as he's struggling. And let me tell you, friends, if you find yourself in that, let me just give you one word of encouragement. And that is that if you find yourself with that stubborn grip on God that won't let him go no matter how bad it gets, God is actually doing something great in you. And in fact, there's the potential of transforming you into something great. This one preacher named Tim Keller in New York, he said this one thing that I have just been thinking about over and over again. He said, the times of darkness may be supreme opportunities for God to do something great in you. And what does he mean? He says, listen, would you consider this? Heman is holding on to God, still praying, still Godward, even though he's not getting anything out of it anymore. There's no answers. There's no sunlight. There's, no, there's not even the decency of God's presence in his life. And Keller says, you know, this is sort of like another sufferer. If you turned left from the Psalms, before that is the book of Job. 
And if you know the story of Job, here's another sufferer. And if you remember that story, there's this gauntlet thrown down by Satan to God. And what's the challenge? The challenge is, you want me to consider Job? And Satan essentially says, does Job serve you for nothing? Of course he serves you. You know why? You answer his prayers. And you bless him. And you give him the light of your countenance. And you've given him everything you want. But you take that away from Job. You leave him in the pit and take everything away and don't answer his prayers and keep him in the darkness and I promise you he will curse God and die. That's the gauntlet. What's Satan saying? Don't you see? You are just a means to an end for all of them. They don't want you. They're just out for what they can get from you. And if they can't get what they want from you, they'll be out. That's the gauntlet. That's the challenge. And, and Keller says, you know, there's a sting of truth to Satan's accusation. We do start out, especially with superficial relationships that is using God to a means to an end. But the darkness has this power to transform us. Because in Psalm 88, Satan is defeated. Heman's not getting anything out of this anymore. There's no prayers being answered. There's no light coming. And he's still with God. And Keller says, darkness is the time when God comes to you and listen to this. And he says to you, now we will see if you got into this relationship to serve me or to get me to serve you. Right? The darkness has a way of having God come to us and say, now we'll see whether you got into this to get me to serve you or if you've been in this to serve me. And brothers, as you find yourself in the pit, God is transforming you so that you are not a mercenary that's using God to some other ends. You are able to say with the other Psalms, though my heart and my flesh may fail, you are the portion of my life and you're everything that I want. God has the power to do that through your darkness. Let me end by saying this. You here today, you know something that even Heman didn't know. You know what's amazing? You know something that Heman had no idea about. There's two dark Psalms. Psalm 39, Psalm 88. 39 ends with, turn your face from me. 88 ends with, in the darkness. And you know what you know that Heman didn't? That there is one sufferer for whom these psalms became more true than Heman ever knew. There is one sufferer from whom God did turn his face and leave in the darkness in a way that you and I feel, but we've never been truly abandoned. We've never been truly left in the dark. But Matthew 27, verse 45, listen to this as Jesus is hanging on the cross. It says, From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at about three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you turned your face, forsaken me? Haman never knew that the very God he was praying to would pray his own prayer with greater reality than he could ever imagine. That Heman's words would have become that God's reality. That Jesus Christ was, as Heman says, swallowed up in waves of God's wrath. That he was left in darkness. And that God did turn his face from him so that Jesus endured Heman's worst nightmare so that you and I wouldn't. So that even what Heman accuses God of is transformed. You know what, Heman? 
there is actually a choir now in the land of the dead. And there is a concert on the other side of the grave because the sufferer went through the darkness and came out into the land of the light and he will bring us with him as well. You find yourself in darkness, brother or sister, then I want you to hear from Psalm 88 with me. Know that even godly believing mature Christians find themselves in the darkness. And when they do, tell God how dark it is and hold on and don't ever let go because God is doing something great in you. Let's pray together.